Many people in Aotearoa, New Zealand, are unaware that between 1881 and 1944, the government imposed a poll tax on all Chinese migrants to the country. The amount was originally £10, later increasing to £100 in 1896, and there were restrictions on how many people could migrate as well. These taxes, on top of other legal restrictions imposed only against Chinese people, were overtly discriminatory and they placed undue hardship on those wanting to enter the country. Playwright and director Talia Poor first learned about the poll tax when she was putting together a high school drama assessment. A few years later, she took on everything she learned and created a play called Pork and Poll Taxes, which premiered in Auckland in August 2021. In this episode, Talia talks to me about why it was important to her to create this play, her experiences both behind and on stage in the New Zealand performing arts scene, and the importance of diverse Asian representation on stage and screen. Talia is also the creator of an exhibition that took place in Auckland earlier this year, which explored the history of Chinese migration to New Zealand through interviews with the descendants of Chinese immigrants who came to this country during the 20th century. And this is where our conversation begins. You currently have an exhibition on at the moment at Brito Mart in Auckland CBD um, called To Grow Roots Where They Land. land. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. um, So To Grow Roots Where They Land is, I guess some like context first, is is actually a Chinese like proverb, which talks about how you can, I guess create a new home away from where you're from which is like contradictory to the other Chinese proverb which is like fallen leaves always return to their roots which is like we always return back home to where we are from so um, the reason I chose that name um, to grow roots where they land because the exhibition tells the story of six descendants of Chinese refugee wives who actually came here to New Zealand and this was like a really important or quite, yeah, a transformative time for the Chinese community in New Zealand because with the bringing of women and children here, it actually allowed the Chinese community to establish roots and actually become, I guess, New Zealand citizens. Though it took a very long process because when the women and children came here, it was only for a temporary um, time. So it took about like eight years after before they were finally allowed to actually stay here. So, and I th- yeah. yeah, and I think for some context for people who might not be familiar with uh, the history of at least Chinese migration mm. into New Zealand, um, do you want to ex- do you want to explain a bit about that? Yes, <laughs> yeah. So more context. <laughs> um, so the Chinese people first kind of came to New Zealand in around the eighteen sixties um, during the Gold Rush. They were invited over to work the abandoned gold claims in Otago when all the kind of, I guess, European workers went to the West Coast. That's when they started coming in large numbers. So during that time, it was a very male-dominated community here in New Zealand. There were, like, next to no women here. And that's because all the women and children were still back home in China And the Chinese came here because, I guess, the conditions back home were really terrible. There was a lot of civil unrest and poverty. Because around that time, like, they just came out of the opium wars. So they were very crippled as a nation. Um, And there was a lot of, I guess, other kind of natural 
climate kind of issues as well, like droughts and flooding, which really, um, yeah, was not a good time. And so it really forced these kind of communities, specifically in the southern parts of China, to actually look overseas to for work in order to um, support their families. Um, so that's why the Chinese came over here and they would send money back. And the goal was to, I guess, have enough money to then kind of set yourself up for life and to um, provide for the family and the village. Um, so, yeah, it was about like over a hundred years or so of that, or almost a hundred years of just men, like generations of men coming here to work and send money back. And then during this, when the Sino-Japanese War happened, which was about 1940s, late 1930s, so just before World War II, that's when, I guess, conditions in China got really bad um, when the Japanese invaded. And so that's when the Chinese community petitioned the government to allow them to bring their wives and their children here where it was safe. Yeah. That's and I think, a very brief history. Yes, very, very brief. Yeah, high-level overview. Um, <laughs> and I think an important part of that is to note that the New Zealand government at the time didn't allow the men to bring over their families because mm. they didn't want them to settle here. They always wanted yeah. them to go back to where they came from. Yeah, yeah. So there was a lot of anti-Chinese um, legislation at the time, the most notable one being the poll tax, which they had to pay. So in about, I think it was the 1880s, I guess the Europeans here felt very threatened by, I guess, the large numbers of Chinese coming here. So they wanted to put in place a poll tax similar to other colonies where the Chinese had to pay money in order to come into the country. And then in like um, 1896, that was then raised to 100 pounds um, which is equivalent to about a year's wages at the time for a European worker. So in terms of value, imagine that being like $40,000 or something that they had to pay just to come in. And it was a specifically racial legislation because it was only targeted towards the Chinese because they were Chinese. And then there was a whole lot of other legislation around it, like um, the Chinese weren't allowed to get a pension or they weren't allowed to bring their wo- their wives and their family over here and the whole goal was yeah to prevent Chinese from coming here um because they yeah were just scared of them um and yeah I don't want to oversimplify but Mm. yes there was a lot of uh kind of irrational fear around Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. so what got you interested in focusing on these particular stories that you focused on for your exhibition Mm. um well, I hmm, okay. Well, I got interested in I guess New Zealand Chinese history in my final year at school. That was the first time I heard about it, and because I myself am not, I guess, part of the original New Zealand New Zealand Chinese. Um, I'm I guess of a later later wave of immigration. My parents come from Malaysia, and I was born here, so. I had no, I guess, understanding of the the history of Chinese in New Zealand. So when I found out about it, that we had, that the Chinese had been in New Zealand for this long and had made significant contributions to New Zealand society and in a way faced similar kind of discrimination and like racial issues that 
was still prevalent today, it was it really fascinated me. And also the fact that people didn't seem to know about it. I feel like New Zealand is very good at teach or not very good, but they teach a lot about the bicultural history of New Zealand, but often what's left out is the multicultural history. And we have been a multicultural country almost as long as we have been a bicultural country. So it's like, hmm. Um, so that was that first introduction. Then I guess last year or last couple of years, I was working on a play called Pork and Poll Taxes. And that was focused on the early Chinese part of New Zealand history um, around the 1890s, around the 100 pound poll tax era. And then through that, I, w- I worked with an amazing historian, a bunch of historians, one of them being Lily Lee, and she is a descendant of a refugee and of market gardening stock. Um, and yeah, she was writing a book at the time about the Chinese refugees that came here. And so she got me interested in the more female-centric part of New Zealand history, which is nice because... As I said before, like the earlier part of the history is very male dominated, but the women were there and they were part of the whole experience. They just aren't always, I guess, included in what is written, but that doesn't mean they weren't important. Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, I feel like history is full of untold stories of women's experiences. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so what do you feel like you learned from the process of putting together your exhibition? Yeah, well, I learned a lot of history, which was (laughs) like, wow, history. Um, But I think the biggest takeaway from it was just, I don't know, it was just the experience of listening to these stories um, because I interviewed um, six of the descendants and just hearing about their experiences growing up and yeah, how they found growing up in New Zealand and seeing themselves as Chinese and like even just like what they do on Chinese New Year and just learning about their family history was just really, it was really nice and it was really beautiful because, yeah, they have a lot of stories to tell, especially like the older ones. Um, yeah, there's such a wealth of knowledge, so it was, it was really nice to just be able to listen. And I feel like I've adopted like aunties now. <laughs> That's <laughs> so cool. <laughs> That's really awesome. Um, And so you also mentioned your play that you Mm -hmm. wrote and produced. And directed. And directed. Ah, Not Um, produced. I can't do that. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I have an amazing producer for that. Okay, (laughs) Okay, so you wrote and directed called Pork and Pole Taxes. Can you Mm -hmm. tell me a bit more about the background behind that, what inspired you, and I guess just the storytelling behind that? Mm, Yeah, um, so I guess, um, yeah, so Pork and Pole Taxes, as I said, focuses on, I guess, the early New Zealand Chinese history. The inspiration, I guess, for it was the kind of sacrifices made by the family as a whole. So I wanted to tell a story that was a family story, like not just about the men that came here, but the women who were left behind and how and the lives that they lived and how across different countries they were these two groups of people were like separated but how they were very closely intertwined despite being in different places so it's about a yeah I guess a dad and a son who are in New Zealand and the father wishes to stay in New Zealand and bring his wife over so it's kind of like dun 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 what does that mean (laughs) and then it's like the poll tax and it's like oh no um so yeah it's about belonging and like 
I guess at the time, the people not because the Chinese didn't intend to generally didn't intend to stay as well. So mm-hmm. it's like that transition of being a so- sojourner. I never know how to say that word. Versus a <laughs> like that's a settler. Right. Oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> I just read it and I'm like, <laughs> yeah. So it's like that transition of like those two Chinese proverbs I said, like that. No, you can't create a new home. You always have to come back. Versus, I want to create a new life for myself. And like, which one is right? So that's mm. what's about. There's the poll taxes part, and can mm-hmm. you explain what the pork part? Oh yes, is? the pork. Mm, <laughs> I love pork. Uh, <laughs> I, I chose pork because lots of reasons. Um, one, I feel like for Chinese people, it's you know it's one of our staples in a way in terms of like cuisine. Like when we think of pork, it's like ah, oh, yes, Chinese food. So for me, it like has a lot of like yeah, lots of personal kind of mm, towards it. But that's just a side note. Um, it's pork <laughs> because um, in Chinese culture, the pig is a symbol of wealth and fortune. So the pig kind of symbolized these men who came to New Zealand in search of, I guess, fortune and wealth, of bringing the money back and all of that stuff. But on the flip side, when the poll tax was increased to 100 pounds, the Chinese referred to it as my jujai, which is um, the pig trade, because they said paying 100 pounds is like selling yourself like a pig. So it's like kind of this tension between sacrifice and fortune. And yeah, so that's why it's a pig. And just like on another side note, like superficially, <laughs> like at the time, the men also wore had pigtails, they had the cues. And mm-hmm. so there's, there's that kind of link to it as well. Very yeah. multifaceted. Yeah. Yeah, love it. Lots of links there. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> so can you tell me a bit more about the journey and process of writing and then directing the play and then having it finally show, mm. luckily before the big lockdown in Auckland last year? Yeah. Um, it, <laughs> Um, yeah, so just maybe just start from the beginning. Like, what is the process like? What do you need to think about? And who do you need to get in touch mm. with? And like, how do you even get it from like an idea in your head onto a stage? Yeah, it was a very long process. So, like I said, because when I first heard of the Chinese history in New Zealand, that was in school. So, that was. I guess the very, very first iteration of the play because we had to do an internal for drama and we had to do like a monologue. So that was like the first kind of iteration that was like epic theater kind of vibes. It was very like a play of ideas, you know, where I would play different characters and stuff and be like, blah, 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 blah. It was only five minutes long. (laughs) And then I guess went to uni and then my mom was like, you know, you should bring, should try and develop it and I was like okay yeah yeah just thought about it for a while didn't do anything and then I was like you know what no I'm gonna do it and that was at the end of 2019 when I started actually sitting down to be like how would I actually put this into um, a full-length play and I guess my first job was like I need to find a producer to help me actually put it on and I managed to find somebody at work who was new 
and her name's Natalia. So we clicked right away because we got similar names. And I was like, I'm looking for a producer. And she was like, oh, I want to be a producer. And so it was just like, yeah. in heaven. Um, and so I guess for us, it was then, okay, let's find some funding so we can put this show on. And we were such noobs because she hadn't really produced anything outside of school. And this was my first time actually writing something and directing something so we're both like I don't know what we're doing <laughs> so we're like let's just apply for some money um and we were like we got some money we're like oh my god it's just so much money um but it really wasn't <laughs> um and we like reached out to proudly Asian theater to get some advice and then through that I don't even know how it happened but then proudly Asian theater was like oh hey we'd like to um actually mentor you in putting this show on and then the first lockdown happened. And so mm-hmm. we're like, okay, let's not use this money to make the show because we can't. Let's use it to actually develop the script. Um, so we sourced more funding and then 2020 was spent um, yeah, developing the script. So there was time for me to write. We got on board um, a dramaturg, so Renee Liang, who's amazing. <laughs> um, and... We held a couple of workshops when we could, when it wasn't locked down, some movement workshops because I wanted to create a work that had physical theater elements and had movement as opposed to just people standing on a stage and talking, which is nothing wrong with that, but I like movement. Um, So we had movement workshops and we had like a couple of table reads. So that was all part of, I guess, that development, script development phase, which Proudly Asian Theater kind of helped us with and like mentored us through then at the end of that it was like cool we've got a script that is kind of ready to stage let's apply for funding to actually put it on and that's when we really partnered alongside Proudly Asian Theatre um Marianne Infante was became our producer and she um, mentored Natalia as the little producer and then Chai Ling became my directing mentor and then it was just like go 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 from there once we got the money it was like ah <laughs> it was like let's start I guess like all the usual production stuff like assembling the team so like um the creative set design costume design getting the music designer then auditioning and then rehearsals and yeah and then finally putting it on so it was it was a long journey about almost I think just over two years for me like from start mm-hmm. to finish Yeah, quite a lot of work goes into a play or any Mm. work really, but um, it's so much more than just sort of putting some people on a stage and repeating some lines. Yeah, totally. Yeah. What was the reception like? Like did it come out or did it turn out as well as you had hoped? Yes and no. I think like we're always critical of what we do. I think in terms of how it was received, it was very well received. Um, We actually sold out before the show even started, which um, doesn't really happen. So that was kind of crazy. There was one night where a whole bunch of the poll tax kind of community came and watched it. And that was like such an electric night. They Mm. loved it. And they like talked to the actors and stuff afterwards and being like, oh, like it's so nice to see my grandmother's story on stage. So I think for me that was kind of like the ultimate goal is like if they're like, if they feel represented, because it's their history, then that's for me is like kind of success. And also my historical consultants came and they were like, good. 
And I was like, mm. oh, thank goodness. <laughs> then I'm like, Phew. you're twisting history. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, I think it was well received. And I was, I was really glad that I got to do it. I think since it was my first time, I'm really, I am proud of what I did. And I believe I was able to fulfill my vision to some extent. But I think because I'm also new that because of my inexperience, I wasn't able to, I guess, take the play to its full potential. And I think when I started directing it, I realized how, not advanced, but like it's a very tricky play to actually direct and a tricky one to direct for your first directing thing. I mean, it's set quite a high standard for your directing debut. (laughs) Yeah. No pressure for your next one. (laughs) And so you now also have the Hand Pulled Collective. Uh, can you tell me about that? Yeah, so um, the Hand Pulled Collective is a little, I guess, theatre company kind of thing that I um, set up with my producer, Natalia. And we created it because of Pork and Pole Taxes because we needed like a name. Um, <laughs> but now we're really hoping to continue to develop new works under that name. And um, the reason it's called Hampled Collective was it was actually inspired by my mum's Hampled Noodles. Yum. So she takes credit for it, but then also my sister <laughs> does because she was the one that actually was like, what about Hampled this? So mm. they both take credit. But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, we kind of, I well, because the sort of works that we want to create are very um, like visionary and imaginative and this idea of like, being handcrafted and pulling people together and pulling stories together. It was like that kind of action of hand pulling was very, I guess, yeah, fitting for that. Yeah, we just hope to grow as a little company and produce more work and tell more stories from, yeah, different communities. Hmm, nice. So you enjoy obviously working behind the scenes in terms of creating theater and Mm -hmm. performance art but you also enjoy a little bit of being in front of the camera or on stage can you tell me a bit about your sort of interest in acting and what it's like being an Mm. actor in New Zealand well I didn't study acting I just kind of did it through school and it's just something I don't know I just really enjoy so I always kind of kept it up during like uni like on the side doing some like little amateur productions at the basement and whatnot. And I kind of fell into somehow doing like dance theater. I don't know how. (laughs) Uh, So that was fun. That was really challenging though. But yeah, I just, I really, yeah, I enjoy performance. I've done definitely more theater than screen because it's just, I guess, really, there's, there's more opportunity in theater. It's like more accessible, but I'm hoping to do some more. But I guess it's just like you just audition and you see if you're going to get it or not. So the the community acting, well, the, I guess, performing arts community that are Asian in New Zealand is very small. So like kind of everybody knows everybody. We yeah. know everyone by like two degrees. So, yeah, you kind of bump into the same people when you're going to auditions and you see the same people on stage. So it's like, yeah, nice. Mm, mm, um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess the types of roles – that would mm. be open for performers of Asian descent are 
kind of limited in New Zealand because I, I yeah. imagine like New Zealand's a very small performing arts community anyway mm. and then on top of that it's the type of roles that you could potentially be auditioning for yeah yeah it's it's challenging yeah to find roles I guess that are yeah are written for Asian people I guess times are changing now slightly in which especially with like film companies are wanting more diversity and they also want to get into the Asian market so there is they intentionally are looking for people of color to fill those roles which is great because it means there are more opportunities but and also it does create its own challenges because then sometimes it's like am I just getting this role because of my color and not Mm. because of who I am or you just uh kind of filler roles there's like that I guess the trap of like tokenism mm-hmm. it's like we get the one 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 black guy one like Chinese guy one Indian guy is like and yeah it's tricky because there aren't as many I guess stories out there told from our community so then the roles you do get sometimes they're not as nuanced mm-hmm. as they could be because maybe they're not written from that community or yeah when yeah, there's less of it, it's, yes. it's harder. Yeah, totally. And that's, again, one of the strongest themes of this podcast is the value of representation and and the context of what we're talking about now, like the value of representation in the entertainment industry as a whole. That's why, for example, like if, if a non-Asian person wrote a role for an Asian person, it's far less nuanced because I don't have that lived experience. Mm. Um, and that's why it's important to get more people of diverse backgrounds into all roles, whether that's mm. behind the scenes or not, um, so that these roles can be more authentic, right? Yeah, yeah. And it'll be nice like one day to like get stories that – like if it's got an Asian actor, it, the story doesn't have to be about their culture. Yeah. It's just that they're Asian, you know? Like it's always like, I guess with the starts, like always Asian stories, it's like it's about me struggling with my identity and culture. <laughs> but eventually we'll get to a stage where it's like it, it's just the character's Asian and that's just who they are. Yeah, um, they can just be rather yeah, than having <laughs> having to struggle with their identity and culture and also know like ridiculous amounts of martial arts. Like I find yeah. <laughs> all the movies involving yeah. Asian actors. <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, cool. So what are your thoughts then about the big companies like Marvel, etc., who – are creating movies like Shang-Chi and like mm. Disney doing like the Mulan live remake, whatever, um, which was terrible. Uh, but I let's know, leave that conversation. So for I know it was so cringy, wasn't it? I could not watch it like seriously. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And literally, first five minutes, I was like, I really don't like it. Yeah. Why? Why is she running on a? Why is she good? She's supposed to suck at the start. Like, anyway, yeah, um, yeah. So, do you have any thoughts around that? Hmm. Yeah, lots of thoughts. Like disclaimer: I'm not uh, super like f- following all of this, or like I guess intellectualize all this. So, I'm just going to say my thoughts, and hopefully, they won't offend people. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's good 
in that it's creating more opportunities for Asian stories to be on screen. It creates opportunities for all Asian creatives, um, not just the ones in front of the camera, but also behind those who create the work, which is amazing. I guess one of my, not qualms, but thoughts around it is we are getting a lot of these, I guess, mainland kind of China kind of stories coming out or like Chinese American experiences, um, but are still very, I feel like, connected to the mainland and that doesn't necessarily represent the really large diaspora of Chinese or Asian experiences. So when I watch these movies, I don't see my I see myself represented like a part of myself represented because that is my I guess Chinese part. And I was like, yes, I relate to that. But I don't see the other part of me, my Malaysian Chinese heritage. I don't see that represented on stage. Or not stage, screen. <laughs> Theater lover at heart. Um, yeah, so it is just really interesting the amount of these kind of Chinese and Asian kind of stories coming up. I remember at the start of last year, we had a little acting course, which Proudly Asian Theatre ran, and it was for getting, I guess, us on screen. And the thing that we kept on being told was that Asian faces are like the new hot thing that people want because Asia has the market at the moment. So Mm. it's a weird thing to be, to have been marginalized. And now you're like the new thing that people want, like the exotic Thing that they want in their projects it's like weird to be I guess um, commoditized in that way in that you're mm-hmm. like a currency to help them get into the Asian market but if that means more of us are on screen then that's still a step forward it's a tough one eh because that all kind of just goes to the fact that Hey, capitalism. Mm. Um, oh, yes, capitalized. Yes. <laughs> well, commodified too. Um, but capitalism, um, but also it greatly points to the powers in play because the execs in those boardrooms or whatever are still probably primarily white and they're mm. operating in a system that is still ruled by white supremacy and mm. – yeah, yeah, so there's a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess that leads to my next question. Like what would you ideally like to see in terms of diversity and representation and inclusion in the performing arts? Yeah, I guess I'd like to see more of, I guess, my experience and I guess other experiences um, within, I guess, our community represented on stage and screen and kind of yeah being included in like if we're looking just at the New Zealand context like I guess our stories being more included in the New Zealand story Mm -hmm. yeah um that would be awesome and just yeah having more more of it would Mm. be good yeah yeah so your personal story um Mm. there's a very strong connection between well I feel as an outsider looking in there's a very strong connection between like your own experiences and your own background um and 
how you see your own identity and your work. So um, you mentioned before that you are Malaysian Chinese, but you were born here and you grew Mm. up here. Do you want to tell me about that experience? So did you have like the typical like third culture kid upbringing where you were sort of like one foot in one culture, other foot in another culture? I think definitely as when I was young, a little one, I didn't feel like I don't remember ever feeling like I didn't want to be Chinese because I know I like talking with friends. Some people like wanted to be like their white friends. But I was very fortunate. I guess I didn't grow up feeling that. I almost felt very proud of my difference. It's like, yes, I'm Chinese. You know, I'm different. Um, but I think when I got older, I kind of started to feel a bit like I didn't, I wasn't, I guess, Asian enough. Because um, mm. like for myself, me and my sisters can't speak um, our mother tongue, which is Hokkien. Um, dialect of Chinese so that I feel like has always been my biggest like thorn in my flesh like that I can't speak like our parents would like use would speak in Hokkien when they didn't want us to know what they're talking about and it's like <laughs> sneaky yeah usually it's like when they're talking like numbers or <laughs> money stuff they're like right. kids don't need um, so yeah I always felt very like upset about it because like my parents could have taught me I mean they tried but like we would reply in English, so they thought it wasn't working. Mm. So that's always been, I guess, something that I struggled with and it's like I feel like I can't connect with my culture in that way, though I guess to make up for it, I feel like I connect more with it through food because my mom's an amazing cook. And so, yeah, so she makes all these amazing, amazing dishes and so I feel like I connect a lot more through the food as I said, I was growing up, I was like feeling a bit like not Asian enough, and but at the same time, I'm not Kiwi enough to be Kiwi. And so when I was in my second year of uni, I did like a project actually where I kind of delved deep into like what is heritage and how can we connect with it. Maybe I should give some context. I studied creative technologies which at AOT. It was a multidisciplinary degree, so it's project-based and you can kind of really do anything <laughs> you want. Um, digital, physical, um, interactive, not interactive sound. It was a melting pot. Anyway, so it's been a semester kind of researching into heritage and like trying to, I guess, reconcile how my relationship with my heritage. And then as a result of that, I kind of kind of came more into terms with it. Like I'm still on a journey, but I felt more like secure that actually heritage isn't just about the past and what you carry on but it's also what you're creating now and you create heritage now to pass on so it's like not just about what I don't have but it's like I actually do have a heritage that you know I just didn't realize so I then created like a game called continuum which then gets people to have a conversation about their heritage I feel better about it though the language thing still bugs me like the last time we went to Malaysia, I felt so very upset. Well, not upset, but just like the the sounds of people speaking Malay, people speaking Hokkien. And I was like, it spoke to me, but I just, I couldn't communicate or interact with it. I've been trying to like teach or learn Mandarin, which I feel like is kind of in a way links to the whole like representation topic we've got, we had before. It's because 
like Hokkien is a dialect, so it's like a it's a smaller community of people, and so they don't really teach Hokkien, but you can be taught Mandarin. Like you can go to school and learn Mandarin, and it's like that. Like even with our stories, we get this kind of we get the mainstream of Chinese culture and Chinese stories being told, but we don't always get the like the dialect kind of stories. Totally, as, um, being taught. And yeah. Told. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I feel like that's how languages or dialects eventually get lost over time because it gets diluted with each generation. Mm. What do you think it is about the language aspect that really just gets your goat? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, not my goat. (laughs) Um, I guess... I don't know. I think I've always had a fascination with languages. I think it's just so cool that you can communicate with different words and you can think in like, it's like, you know, when you watch people play music, it's like they list, they, un, they know a different language and to communicate in a different way is like, it's just really fascinating and just amazing. Yeah. I don't know. It's just not being able to speak my mother tongue is just. It's like, I'm white on the insides, like I'm a banana. <laughs> it's like, I can't communicate, I guess. I, there's a massive part of my culture which I feel like I can't access mm-hmm. because I don't have the language. Yeah, I think, like, for myself as well, like, I am, the older I get, the more I realize, like, even though I grew up speaking Mandarin, there's actually just so much more to the language that I wish that I had learned as I was growing up. Mm. And just, like, seeing videos of people who can speak such amazing Mandarin and they're not even Chinese. Yeah, and it's like, <laughs> what? Um, yeah, so... In terms of your connection with like your Malaysian Chinese heritage, then um, did you like did you grow up with quite a close connection with the traditions and practices and things? It's kind of hard to say because it's like it's not like my parents were like, "This is a tradition that we do." They just <laughs> they just did it. They just lived yeah. it out. So that's why I think it wasn't until I was older that I realized that I had all this heritage that I just didn't realize was something I just thought you know that's just how you do it but it was actually it was how my parents did it which was influenced by how they were brought up in Malaysia but I feel like as we're getting older my mom's like "Ooh, like these are traditions that I didn't even know existed let's try it out like especially with Chinese New Year yeah um, right. she's like huh I didn't know that was a thing let's do it this year <laughs> it's like okay yeah it's I think a lot can also be said in terms of like for for people like us who have grown outside of the context of our cultures as well like there are all these traditions and practices and stuff but they really mean nothing without the context and Mm. like it's only until like maybe when you get older and you understand a bit more about like your own culture um, and why people do certain things um, does it really become more significant yeah, I think because when I was talking to my mom about like how I was feeling about, you know, I'm like, I don't feel like Asian enough. She's like, why are you worry? Like, well, like in Malaysia, like, why are you worry, why are you worry so much? Ah, <laughs> um, she she was like, it doesn't matter if you can't speak the language. It's like, well, it's different for you because when you were growing up in Malaysia, you were surrounded by all this culture, by like, yeah, by like Chinese people and just the Malaysian culture. So. 
it's like already infused in you. You just don't realize while being here is like completely like removed from that. It's like harder to connect to it. It's not as accessible. I, that reminds me, I read a really great article in, um, re it's called re like re oh yeah with the like, that. yeah yeah <laughs> it just sounds weird when you say it out because it sounds like half a sentence or like half a <laughs> word um but yeah it, the news website and there was an article written by somebody who talked about how because when she was growing up her parents right I think they still run the the takeaway shop and so there was a great quote I can't remember it exactly but there was mm. basically the meaning was like for her parents, it was about survival essentially. And they didn't have the luxury of the time to sort of sit and reflect on things like the traditions and culture and things that they're passing down Mm. to their children. Whereas for her, it's a priority to sort of preserve those things. I'm so sorry if that is like a misrepresentation (laughs) of the quote, but that's what I understood from it. Um, And it's so true. Just like, obviously I don't like, I don't know um, your parents' story, but for a lot of Chinese migrants, like my parents, um, it really was about survival, at least in the beginning, just settling into a new country, trying Mm. to make enough money, trying to get settled. And there just wasn't that luxury of like time and just emotional and mental capacity to think beyond that. Yeah, no, totally. I think like that was a like a similar trend that I found when I guess like doing interviews as part of Pork and Pole Taxes and the exhibition, like researching and talking to these people. It's like, yeah, they just there wasn't time to like think and like to take the time with the culture. It was just, yeah. We need to like get food on the table. We need to make sure you're well fed. I think um, also for like us, there is a little bit of a sense of a loss, right? Like mm-hmm. the loss of fully understanding your own culture, the loss of fully understanding your own language and being able to communicate fully in your own language. And it's, I feel like a lot of the work that we do now is like trying to like reclaim all of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like no matter like where you're from, it doesn't have to be just from China or wherever. Mm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, I really hope to see more of your work out in the open and wild and in uh, theatres or cinemas maybe one day mm. um, and maybe to also see your face on stage or more stages and like screens and things. So I wish you all the best um, with oh, whatever it is you. that you choose to do. And um, I think that... Yeah, I think it's great work that you're doing in terms of like representation and storytelling and telling the stories that deserve to be told. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you as always for listening. And I hope this conversation was enlightening and an enjoyable listen. Talia was such a delight to talk to and I loved her vibrant and positive energy. I can't wait to see what she does next. If you haven't done so already, it would be amazing if you could rate, review and share this podcast. It helps immensely to get these amazing stories heard. Finally, you can follow along on Instagram. Just search for Not Your Token Minority Podcast.